Hi, my name is Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I am delighted to be joined today by Sean Houston, Legal Operations Manager at Heineken and Bright Flag alumni. Sean, you are very welcome. Thank you very much, Alex. Pleasure to be here. I feel quite honored. Thank you for the invite. Sean, let's start at the beginning. What drew you to a career in sports broadcasting? It's a good question. I think like a lot of kids growing up, I, I played a lot of different sports and always and still am you know, a big fan of sports. And I think it was evident pretty early on that you know, playing sports professionally wasn't going to be a viable uh, career path for me, just didn't quite have the the talents. So I decided why not do the the next closest thing and talk about it instead. So I always really enjoyed watching sports on television and listening to them on the radio and thought it was just a wonderful career path. So kind of decided in somewhere around high school and early college that that's what I wanted to do. Was lucky enough to be able to, to do it for, for several teams, for a few different professional sports teams in the United States. And that was a wonderful experience, one that I, I look back on very fondly. At the University of Florida, you actually kind of specialized in studying telecommunications and news to that. Did you find that helpful in your career in broadcast? Yeah, absolutely. I was very lucky growing up in Florida. The, the University of Florida is one of the better journalism programs in the U.S. I was fortunate enough to to attend UF and during my time there as well, the sports teams were very good. The, the football team won two national championships. The basketball team won two national championships. The baseball team was very good on down the line. So yeah, it was a, it was a great time to, to go to school there and they have a wonderful program. People like myself who are in, interested in journalism, particularly broadcast journalism, both on the news side and on the sports side. And as part of your curriculum, you do a lot of courses where you get really kind of into the weeds and reporting and the technical aspects that go into the production and all of that. And then there's a lot of opportunities to do more things kind of in your free time, resume builders, and a lot of them are, are paid gigs as well. And so, yeah, a lot of opportunities right there on campus covering one of the better athletic programs in the States. So yeah, it was, it was a, a very good experience and got some internships as a result of that. And then, yeah, I was able to pivot that directly into a career working in uh, major league baseball, starting with the Tampa Bay Rays. It's amazing speaking to the guests on the podcast, Sean, Jen McCarran was on from Netflix last week and the diversity of backgrounds that people have had that have ultimately become leaders in the legal operations space. It's really remarkable. And I think kind of working in a variety of different fields and broadcasting is one I'm curious to understand from your perspective, how you felt it helped you develop skills that have kind of proven useful for you subsequently in your career. Are there things, specific skills that you feel have really stood to you that you developed in that kind of early stage after college? I definitely think so. Just being able to effectively communicate is a very key aspect and a you know requirement to be successful in legal operations. And that's obviously something you learn a lot of in broadcast journalism and having the economy of words and being able to make sure that you're getting your point across very clearly and as efficiently as possible is something that I think everyone can benefit from, but especially in a, a role such as legal ops, where 
you're having to work with so many different people and so many different teams. Uh, yeah, I think that is something that absolutely has um, you know served me well and in, in my career so far. From my experience working directly with you, Sean, from your amazing years at Bright Flag and working with our customers, I think it was a real strength for you and, and so important in bringing people on that journey when you're introducing new technology, driving change. And obviously that's at the heart of the legal operations leadership role as well. I'm curious to understand, you obviously had a clear picture from high school in terms of wanting to get into the kind of sports broadcasting space. Why baseball specifically? Because it seems like many of your roles were, were specifically with baseball teams. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I am a big fan of baseball and played it growing up. I, I I like all sports, to be honest. I'm a big basketball fan, big football fan, American football, also football, as we would call it here in, in Europe now, and others. But you know, the reason I kind of wound up on the baseball path, really, it's the the one that has the most opportunities in the States for broadcasting specifically. So for those who might be familiar, there's a very large minor league organization of kind of what they're referred to as like feeder teams for these major league organizations. And it's just much larger and, you know, more built out with hundreds of teams across the country that all are kind of related to one of the the 30 major league teams. And that doesn't really exist in American football. It's a much smaller example. And when you look at the NBA, so yeah, basically the two sports that have the most robust minor league systems are baseball and hockey. And I'm much more knowledgeable and more interested in baseball. So I kind of went that route, but the majority of young broadcasters, you kind of, by happenstance, if you want to do play-by-play, you have to really do one of those two sports and then kind of cut your teeth and, and work your way up, so to speak. There's obviously some outliers not to borrow a t- name of the, the term of this podcast, there's some outliers uh, that, that might follow a somewhat different path, but majority of, of young broadcasters go kind of one of those two ways. Most people in that kind of early stage of their career have some kind of uh, scars to show from it and kind of lessons learned. And were there any particularly challenging parts of sports broadcasting or specific moments that kind of stand out in your memory, where, which were more difficult? You're really triggering some PTSD here, Alex, but no, really there, there definitely are. I was working for three seasons with a team called the Charleston River Dogs based in Charleston, South Carolina. At the time we were an affiliate of the New York Yankees and um, played in what was then called the South Atlantic League. The minor league baseball has undergone a reorganization in the last couple of years. So a lot of these terms I'm using no longer apply. South Atlantic League no longer exists, et cetera. But the idea is the same. And you play in the leagues are are regional. So in this case, we were kind of located in the southeast part of the U.S. And we were playing a lot of teams throughout Georgia and South Carolina and that area. A lot of long bus rides. There were a couple of teams a little further north up in the Maryland area. So quite a long distance, several hours on a long bus with 40 other guys and not a lot of space to yourself. And then, you know, having to to arrive in the wee hours of the morning and then kind of quickly sleep for a few hours if you can at the hotel and then get right back to the ballpark for a game the next night. Because for those who might be unfamiliar, baseball is an everyday type of sport where you, you know, play six or seven days a week. Even though I wasn't playing, of course, you know, it's still a very grinding kind of profession to be in with the long bus rides and you're playing it oftentimes 
very old, not very comfortable ballparks. And the press boxes in some cases are just not made at all to, to be kind of hospitable for broadcasters. So you, sometimes you're kind of tucked off in a corner in an open press box trying to call a game while other people are having conversations on the other side and eating their hot dog. And you might have a fan right in front of the window kind of yelling random things here and there, and you're trying to focus on a game. And one of the things about baseball that makes it very interesting to a lot of people, but cannot be very fun if you're a broadcaster is rain and weather plays a key role a lot of times. And if the weather gets too tough, they'll call the game and kind of postpone it for a bit. And you kind of have to sit around and wait for it to stop raining before the game will continue. So there are some nights where you're in hour five, six, or seven even of a, of a baseball game and inning 15, 16, 17, where it seems like there's no end in sight. And you're talking into what seems like a microphone that no one is listening to. So there were definitely some long nights where really questioning what exactly am I doing here? But luckily those were few and far between. And overall the experience was tremendous. And it's a reason that you see these people that get into these, this profession specifically, they will oftentimes do it until their seventies or even into their eighties. And the reason is because the highs are extremely high and it's very, it can be a very fun sport, particularly when you get to that high level. If you're a national broadcaster broadcasting, let's say uh, world series games or the super bowl. I mean, it's hard to compete with that. That would be one of the best feelings in the world. So yeah, I, I think Overall, definitely some, some moments I look back on where it was not the most fun, but, but overall, uh, it was a, a tremendous experience. I'm sure a lot of fun along the way as well. Yeah, that, that, that's incredible. It's probably yeah, what, you, what you don't see behind the scenes, the, the hours on buses, the late nights that go into delivering the finished product in terms of a broadcast uh, are incredible. I, I'm interested, how did you find your way then into working in the tech space, Sean? Yeah, it's a good question. I finished my kind of broadcasting career, at least the full-time version of it, when I was living in Charleston after my third season there with the River Dogs. I, you know, had kind of decided, look, I've been at this for six or seven years now after college, not including the the years in college of of calling games there at the University of Florida. But also I was kind of ready for a change. It is a young man's profession, if you will it's not very conducive to kind of as you get older and and want to potentially have a family and these sorts of things. It's really, really difficult if you're not in a very established type of scenario, which I certainly was in a good scenario that I was there with Charleston, but not one where, you know, you kind of all, everything is lined up for you, if that makes sense. It's a profession that a lot of people are trying to get into. So it's very competitive. And unfortunately, minor league baseball, these are small organizations the pay that you receive sometimes isn't the greatest. So I think for a lot of reasons, plus at that time I was dating my now wife, Lindsay, we had been together for about a year and a half at that point. I was just kind of ready for a change. So we had decided we were going to together relocate to Austin, Texas. And I had always been very interested in technology, but something that was a key part of my role with the river dogs, I was kind of in charge of a lot of our digital initiatives, such as uh, running our website and helping run our social media platforms and these sorts of things. And within broadcasting, you use a lot of different technologies as well, both softwares and also hardwares, physical hardwares like 
microphones and um, broadcasting equipment and that sort of thing. So it had always been something I was you know, very involved with, with my day-to-day work, uh, but also very interested in. And you look at what are some of the largest companies in the world these days, a lot of them are technology related and, you know, majority of startups have something to do with technology. And it's something that I'm very interested in. And I think obviously is, is most definitely here to stay. So I decided that's kind of where I wanted to shift my focus. And from a career perspective, it's one that I saw as having a bright future in a lot of different ways you can go if that makes sense. So yeah, we settled on Austin. I found a job working with a tech startup there, there for a little bit, then worked my way, wound up at Hot Schedules, which was a fantastic organization. It was a pretty well-established startup by that point there in Austin. We were selling scheduling and labor management software to hospitality industries. Throughout my time at Hot Schedules, they went through several reorgs. And as a result, I was kind of pivoted from sales to customer success, kind of back and forth a few different times over my tenure. And that was a really cool experience to to get a chance to do a lot of different things, work with different companies of different sizes all across the globe. And then eventually when we moved to Ireland, I took over running all of our European business from a customer success perspective. So it was really just kind of by happenstance that I wound up there with hot schedules and then ultimately ended up being, you know, a a very, very good experience for me. Got a chance to wear a lot of different hats. And I think that kind of prepared me for a role that I'm doing now in legal operations, where I'm, again, wearing a lot of different hats and doing a lot of different things. And, you know, I think having a a bit of a unique background with lots of different changes and that sort of thing has, has suited me well. That's really interesting, Sean. Taking you back to kind of that move to Austin in 2015. Austin is, is, is obviously an incredible city. I imagine it a really nice place to live, but it's become obviously a major tech hub. Was it back in 2015? Did you feel that energy that this was becoming a, a kind of a real tech hub? Yeah, it, it definitely already kind of started its ascent at that point, for sure. A lot of companies had already started to establish big offices there. And a lot of companies as well were relocating from California to Texas, which you've seen a lot more of over the last few years. Actually, the, the first company I worked for in Austin, it was called 58 Phases. That was an example of two guys from California who relocated their business to Austin. I mean, this was a small organization, five or six employees, but that was an example. There were a lot of companies that were doing that. And that was kind of the reason my wife and I had settled on Austin. I'm from the East coast of the US. She's from the West coast. I didn't want to move all the way across the country. So we kind of settled in the middle. Austin was a a good example of a, a great place to live. At the time, it was a very up and coming city. It wasn't super insanely expensive as I know it's become more over the last few years. I kind of checked all the boxes if that makes sense. But yeah, it it definitely had that reputation and was growing a lot and becoming more and more of a a destination. And since we left near the end of 2017, it's just continued and now it's kind of into hyper hyper mode at this point. I know from uh, my experience at Bright Flag Holiday Parties, you're, you're somebody with a bit of musical talent, Sean. There's, there's a great music scene in Austin <laughs> as well. There is, yeah, which is definitely you know something I enjoyed a lot was the the nice live music scene there in Austin. You know, plenty of places to go uh, to catch a concert or just you know 
catch live music while you're having a couple Heineken or having a dinner, that didn't hurt. The kind of history of Austin before the the tech explosion is, you know, around live music. And um, yeah, it's a, I can't speak. I haven't been back in a few years, so I can't say what it's like today. But at least when I was there, it was a, a wonderful place for that. Fantastic. And what I like most about that story, Sean, was the very subtle Heineken product placement. You just dropped it in there really casually. That was that was very professional. You could be working in sales for Heineken. That's right. Yeah. When you're in broadcasting, you have to remember a lot of times who are your sponsors. So if Coca-Cola, let's say, is a big sponsor of the team you're at, you can't say Pepsi and vice versa and these, these sorts of things. So maybe we, we talked about broadcasting earlier, so maybe it's on my brain. <laughs> and, and you mentioned, Sean, that you you kind of had experience in, in that early stage working in the tech space on both the sales side and the customer success side. I obviously know firsthand how incredible you were working in, in kind of senior customer success roles, but what do you think led you to kind of focus in customer success rather than sales? You, like It sounds like there was an element of circumstance around it, but well, what, was there something for you personally that, that you found you, you, were, you were more suited to the customer success space? There was, yeah. So I think ultimately, I really enjoyed the, the aspect of building the relationship with the customer and really getting to know them inside and out. And the idea of in sales, most times you, you kind of start with the outreach, you go through the process. If it's a good fit, they wind up becoming a customer, they sign, and then it essentially gets handed off to someone such as customer success to then work with this customer. And I personally really enjoyed keeping someone as a customer and building that relationship and continuing to work with them for quarters and years at a time versus kind of working with them, getting them in and then handing them off. So for me, that was something I really enjoyed. I think over time, I've become better at the project management side of things and finding where there is a problem and there is something that I can help improve upon and, and find a solution for. You know, I think that's something I also really enjoy. And while there's certainly an element of that with sales, don't get me wrong, I think that I personally enjoyed the that part of it when it comes to customer success a bit more. You mentioned, Sean, you obviously yourself and Lindsay ultimately relocated to Dublin and you were continuing to work with, with hot schedules at that point in your career. And you may not remember this, but I remember a few years ago before the pandemic, I think we were walking back from a, a customer meeting and I was just asking about that experience of working at hot schedules and, and you were talking about the fact that you were like a you were working remotely from the rest of the team at that point and that was something very alien to how we worked in at bright flag at that point in time where we were very much a kind of an office first company obviously with the pandemic that has changed fundamentally and we've really embraced remote working but but you obviously had a lot of experience of working remotely before the kind of the big change we've seen in workplace culture post-covid from your perspective, what were the kind of the greatest advantages, firstly, for you about working remotely at that point in your career? For all of the reasons that a lot of people really like working remotely, the flexibility and the freedom, so to speak, that it provides to you was tremendous. When we first moved to Ireland, I, at the time, was in a kind of hybrid sales customer success role with 
hot schedules. And like any company, you have someone who is doing a good job. And I was doing well on the sales side, particularly, as well as the customer success side. They were willing to kind of be flexible and figure out something that I could do to, to stay with the company. No company wants to leave, <laughs> lose a good salesperson. So that helped, of course. We made the move over and we both had agreed, like, let's try it for six months and see how it goes. And it was going really well. And so I was working remotely from Ireland and I really liked the flexibility of being able to work whenever, wherever. I wasn't tied to being online at 9 a.m. every day, particularly if you think about working in Ireland for a company based in Austin. There's a, a six hour time difference there. So a lot of times I would not start working until later in the day. That would free me up to go get coffee with a friend or do something else in the morning that I wanted to do and then log on a little bit later. Of course, as a result, then that means you're, you're working a bit later into the evening, but it gives you that flexibility to do kind of whatever you prefer. My wife at the time, that was the reason we relocated to Ireland was for her job. She was working based in Ireland, helping run a sales training team based in Europe from Ireland. And as a result, she was doing a bit of traveling around for her company. Because I was working remotely, it did not matter if I was in my apartment in Dublin or in you know, a hotel room in Munich or a hotel room in Stockholm or Paris or Malta. I mean, these are all places that she would go for work from time to time and I could tag along. So it kind of opened up <laughs> a whole new world to me and really, really liked it. And for that reason, you know, it was a wonderful experience for a year and a half or so that I, I did that with hot schedules. The things I did not like about it were I was quite literally on an island uh, in Ireland working for a company six hours behind. So if I needed assistance with something, I was working with our European-based customers. One of my bigger ones was based in London. Let's say had uh, something they needed urgent help with. It was very difficult for me to actually support them until people in the United States started to log on in the early afternoon. So that was a bit frustrating as a CSM, you want to be able to help this customer very quickly, or at least kind of get things in motion and whatever, what have you. But I was, my hands were tied a lot of times. I would have to kind of wait several hours into my day that I did not like. And then the late calls that I would have to make as a result to match up with time zones. I had customers based in California. We're talking about eight hour time difference from Ireland. That made it a bit tougher. And those were the things I did not love about it. And personally, you know, I think you know me, Alex, I'm a, a pretty social, personable guy. And I miss the element of being able to have a chat and have a coffee or go out for a pint after work or whatever the case may be. So I miss that because I was our only European based employee. So I had no kind of social aspect to the work that I was doing. And so I miss those. But yeah, overall, the, the flexibility and the freedom that it provided was tremendous. And also another thing to keep in mind, I was our only remote employee. Hot schedules, just like you were describing Bright Flag. Everyone else was in the office. I wasn't. So it was a bit weird having a totally different setup than all of your coworkers. It's different when everyone is on Zoom and everyone is used to it or Teams or whatever you use. But at the time they were having to create Zoom links for these meetings just for me. And a lot of times they'd forget to dial in at the beginning and I'd have to message them. It was just these little things that you didn't think about kind of pre-pandemic. And as you say, Sean, these are, these are now things, Bright Flag and every other company that is embracing remote working or having to, and hybrid working or having to consider and democratizing how we work, how we ensure everybody is included. 
And I'm curious, do you think it inhibits the ability to continue to learn and develop or get mentoring if you're kind of remote? And is it harder to progress when you're disconnected, maybe to some extent from the the rest of the business like that? Yeah, I've been struggling trying to figure out how I feel about that. I've seen several articles and studies about it recently that, you know, it's, it's much harder for people to get promoted internally and all these sorts of things. And my gut feeling is I think there is some truth to that, particularly for certain types of people who might not be as outspoken or what have you, it might be more difficult for them working remotely maybe than for others. So yeah, my gut feeling is there is an element of it that is, that that does, you know, play a part. Personally, it's hard for me to say during my time with Bright Flag, I was, it was a a very fast moving startup and we had a lot going on all the time. So it was just a lot of, a lot of work to be done. And so we were always very busy. Now that I've moved over here to Heineken, I am in the office a little bit. I'm in the office right now, come in a two or three days a week. And for me, I think this is perfect. I get a chance to see my coworkers. I get a chance to come into the office when needed. If there's something going on at my house or if I have a lot of meetings that day and just really need to be able to focus and dedicate some some quiet space, I can do that easily in the office, connect with coworkers and other departments who I might not always be on calls with. These sorts of things are great, but I don't think I need to do it every day. And so that's why I think the hybrid two or three days a week in the office, two or three days a week at home, to me, that's perfect. And having the flexibility to maybe work from, let's say, uh, a nice beach house in uh, the south of Spain or Portugal or something like that, a few days um, and kind of combine a holiday and, and work together. That type of thing to me is amazing. And I think companies would be very smart to adopt those sorts of things and be flexible where possible, of course. So yeah, I think that's kind of my how I feel about it. Hopefully that answers the question. <laughs> 100% Sean, and I agree. I think there's massive benefits both for employees and for companies in creating an environment where people can can work fully remotely, where they can work in a hybrid way, where there can be an office there available to them if that's their preference. A lot of work needs to be done and thinking about how we ensure that it's being done in an inclusive way and that people are getting the support they need to do their best work and to develop as well. I'm recording the podcast for the first time ever from our office. And so it's it's nice to be back in. And like yourself, I'm, I, I'm certainly looking forward to that now that some of the restrictions are easing. Looking forward to having that flexibility to, to work in the office a few days a week and from home when it's more convenient to do so as well and, and have that engagement with the team. It's definitely made a massive difference. I, I think from a company's perspective, why wouldn't you let your employees pick what is best for them? As long as they're producing and doing the things that you expect out of them from their job, I don't really know why a company would care if you're sitting in the office or sitting at home. You know, having the ability to do what's best for the individual, to me, that's the whole kind of point of it all, right? So yeah, I think having hybrid ability and someone wants to go in five days a week, great. Other people don't want to go in at all, but they're producing at a very high level. Like what's the point in enforcing them to go into the office, I guess. That's kind of how I feel about it. Couldn't agree more, Sean, and, and particularly in the, the current job market where it is incredibly competitive to, to attract and retain talent. I think the companies and the organizations that don't embrace it are going to have a major problem on their hands. And 
in the context of the legal industry specifically, I think law firms in particular probably have just such a legacy uh, way of working in being physically present and how they train more junior lawyers and, and how they operate. Obviously, they found ways to continue working remotely, but I think there's maybe a slightly greater degree of reluctance there around kind of fully embracing hybrid or remote working. And I think they need to be very careful, law firms, about what they do next, because obviously legal talent has a multitude of career paths that weren't available previously, whether in-house, whether alternative legal service providers, or, or obviously, as we're going to go on to talk in more detail now, legal operations. So it's a one major plus to come out of a very, very difficult time for everybody, I think, is that, that acceleration in, in the move to, to hybrid and remote work. I, I might move forward then, Sean, to your time as one of the, the early and, and senior members of the Bright Flag customer success team. I'm interested, were there any differences you identified in working with legal operations professionals and legal teams in those early days with us at Bright Flag when compared to the, the previous customers that you worked with? It's something I've been thinking a, a lot about over the last little bit here. I think there's definitely a lot of similarities to to my experience, but there's also a lot of differences. So maybe I'll start with the similarities. I had a chance to work at a few different software companies that supported different verticals and different parts of organizations. So at Hot Schedules, we focus primarily on hospitality. And I was working primarily with you know, let's say the general manager or the management team of a, a restaurant or a hotel. So that's a bit of a, a very specific type of person that you're dealing with at that level. But at the same time, if let's say this is a, a manager of a, a chain of restaurants, right? And there's a hundred plus locations. I'm also having to deal and speak with director of operations or director of finance and HR for these kind of parent companies that are the chains, and then they have the individual locations or franchises. I've also previously to Bright Flag worked at a company where we sold HR-related software. So I was working very closely with, you know, HR and finance teams within all sorts of verticals uh, across the United States. And I'd say one thing that all of them have in common is all of them are looking for this software to make their lives easier. And I would say majority of them really didn't care what the software was as long as it was doing what they needed it to do and was making their jobs easier and making their lives easier. That's really what they cared about. And then I would say also definitely different levels of maturity. So sometimes, you know, when you're working at a, a company that has been around a long time and this specific role that you're talking to the, the person that's sitting in has been around a long time. Maybe they've been in that role for 20 plus years, or certainly at least the, um, you know, the role itself has been around for a very long time. There's just kind of accepted ways of working and this is how it is, right? And, and that's it. So somewhat more reluctant to change. Whereas at Bright Flag, when you're talking about legal ops specifically, no one's been in this role for 20 years because it didn't exist 20 years ago. Certainly there were people doing elements of this job and people have been doing that for a long time, but the, the kind of whole picture of what legal ops is today is, is just so new that it's, it's ever changing. You speak to large companies that do not even have a legal ops function. I'm the very first legal ops hire at Heineken, which is the, the second largest brewer in the world. So there are plenty of other examples like that. And so I think that's one thing that really was different at Bright Flag is 
you're talking to people who are in a lot of time, a lot of cases, figuring it out as they go and kind of creating and figuring out what they need and want out of this. And that maturity in terms of the role and the expectations wasn't always there. So if you think about that, then there's pros to that, right? You can help kind of coach and guide them to a certain extent on here's exactly how I think you should do it. I've seen ABCD, these other customers do this similarly, and here's what worked well and here's what didn't. And a lot of times they'd be very open to taking your suggestions. Whereas previously, the three or four other companies, the tech space I worked at before Bright Flag, that, not, that wasn't necessarily always the case. A lot of times they were very reluctant. They didn't care, like, this is how we do it and this is it. So I would say in that respect, a lot of times my experience at Bright Flag, the legal ops people were, were much more open to suggestions and open to change. Now, to, to, to counter that, I think it's not a big secret, but by nature, lawyers are very reluctant to change, uh, very conservative and, and don't want to do things differently than they've always done. And I think that's, uh, that's why legal ops has become so popular is because if a lawyer isn't going to ultimately do it, we've got to bring someone in, this legal ops person that will help us do this and move our legal function into you know uh, the modern ways of working. Because if you don't, it's just going to continue to create problems. Uh, and we have to find ways to, to work smarter, not harder. So it's definitely a balance. I'd say for customers and companies that I worked with that had a dedicated legal ops function, much, much better scenario and, and much easier to kind of get change done and get the software, in this case, Bright Flag rolled out and doing what it needs to versus the companies that did not have a dedicated legal ops function. And you're working with someone on the legal team who's just using a few hours of their week, if that, to this project that they've been handed. Absolutely, Sean. And I think what really excites me about the kind of emergence of legal operations as a discipline and a defined role and it's kind of explosion in terms of the number of organizations that are reaching that point where they understand that they need it is so exciting because I think legal operations is that catalyst for change but within the legal department and more generally within the organization in terms of improving legal service delivery but also within the legal ecosystem in kind of enforcing positive change on law firms on legal service providers and improving how they operate as well and we've definitely spoken about this in the past about how important the emergence of clock and the legal operations movement has been in accelerating that pace of change within the broader industry i'm curious how did your kind of time at bright flag then convince you that you yourself stepping into a legal operations role was was where you wanted to go next in your career that was an extremely sad day for, for us here at Bright Flag when we lost somebody with your ability. We were really sorry to see you go. But equally, on, a, on another level, I was really proud to see somebody step into such an incredible role and want to progress their career in the legal ops space and from what everything that it meant for yourself and Lindsay and then Finn on a personal level. So I'm just interested to understand how that thought process worked for you, where you arrived at a conclusion that you wanted to, to build your career in, in legal ops. Yeah, it's a good question. So when you think back to the early parts of the pandemic, which um, sometimes seems like 20 years ago and sometimes seems like a month ago, time is a flat circle these days. I'd say like a lot of people, right? People were doing a lot of kind of soul searching and evaluating their place and everything that, you know, going on in their lives and these sorts of things, these questions that people were asking themselves. And, you know, I was doing the same and 
I think one thing that I came to is like, I want to be making the most positive influence and difference that I can be through my job, through my profession. And one thing that really stood out about legal ops to me is it's so new and it has such an opportunity to, to make such an, a huge amount of change within these organizations that that was really attractive to me. And then the other thing that I think is so unique, and I, I really can't think of another example. Perhaps you can, Alex, if you do, let me know. I can't think of another example. You, know, you look at a company and it's basically the same departments that have always been around for as long as I can even remember. You have sales, you have finance, you have HR, whatever, even HR is, is relatively new. And that's been a long time, right? So you've, you have your development teams, whatever kind of product teams, depending on the company, this sort of thing. The standard kind of standard departments within an organization. But legal ops is a brand new function within organizations that has just come about within the last you know, handful of years, hand, decades, certainly. And it's so rare that you get to join an organization and be the very first hire in this new role at an organization. And so when I was looking at it, it, it you go online, just look up legal ops jobs. I'm the very first hire at Heineken. I started last summer. There are so many other examples of this all across the globe of these very large organizations, very small and everywhere in the middle, uh, hiring their very first legal ops person. So it's a kind of a unique blend of getting to come in and create something and really kind of make it your own as the first person in the seat. And then also have that role be so impactful of changing the way that a company's legal team works every day. So for those kind of reasons, I'd say that really stood out to me of, I think this is something I'm very interested in. And then also through my time at Bright Flag, I had a chance to work with many of Bright Flag's biggest customers all across Europe and North America. And that's, I, I say, almost basically got a master's degree or something in legal ops from all of the amazing experience and conversations that I had through working very closely with these teams. So in some capacity, I think a CSM at a, a legal tech provider is very, very well suited to step into the legal operations role. When you look at a role that is new and no one really has tons of experience doing it, I think I was kind of uniquely suited for it. And um, you know, also just, I think my personality, I like to kind of try new things and go do new things. And sometimes I think you need to hit the refresh button. And so I think all of those things combined, it was the, the right time for me. Was there anything that attracted you to, to Heineken specifically, Sean? Yeah, my wife and I and our son had been there in Ireland for nearly four years at that point. And we were kind of at that point of what do we want to do long-term? Do we want to stay here in Ireland? Maybe we want to move back to the United States. Maybe we want to go somewhere else. And I had always been very interested in kind of moving to mainland Europe and particularly the Netherlands, the Benelux region was one that I was always very uh, fond of and had been to Amsterdam several times, both for work and just as a tourist and, and always really enjoyed it. It's, a, it's such a beautiful city in the Netherlands is such a, a fun country. And so basically said, I'm going to look for opportunities that kind of check all of these various boxes, a, a cool company that I'm interested in and a cool city that I'm interested in. There was a, a few other cities around 
that we were looking at, but Amsterdam was always kind of top of the list. And I wanted to be the first person in the role. And I wanted an organization where the GC sees this as a huge push. And it's something that the GC is, is driving and not kind of being forced upon them. And here, this role was created because our GC saw the, the impact that it can have and the need for it. And this was a push by our, our GC and, and he made that decision. And I work really closely with him and have full support of him and have been empowered by him to make decisions. And he's always willing to, to kind of chime in when he, whenever I have a question or, or want his feedback on things. So kind of all of those things together, I guess, were kind of how we decided on it. We, we didn't want to move back to the States and wanted to try something new. So I think this was the perfect scenario. Well, it's so exciting that you found that kind of unicorn opportunity at Heineken <laughs> where you wanted to be located with the company at the right stage of the journey. And, and really importantly, as you highlighted with the general counsel who was bought into the vision of, of what you wanted to do with the role. And I think that's something that comes up in every conversation I have on the podcast with legal operations leader, how important that alignment with the GC is. But maybe take us back to your first few days then at Heineken. You mentioned you were obviously the first person into a legal operations role, but where would you say Heineken was on a kind of a maturity journey at, at that point in time? Yeah, very early stages. So Heineken has a, a proud history of being a, a family-run organization for more than 100 years. It was a Heineken that was running the company until really fairly recently. And as a result, there's a lot of great things that comes about that, but also there's a lot of kind of things that you know a, a company needs to do to to adopt to the changing times. And so we were, I would say, very early stages on that. Our GC has been in the seat now for a few years, and he is a big believer in this. And so he has brought about a lot of this change as of late. Can't speak for the previous regimes, but I don't know that it was as big of a point of emphasis for them. So I think we've seen a lot of change in a relatively short period of time. To add another element to it, Heineken's a very large decentralized organization. So it's really tough to get change done from Amsterdam for all of our operating companies across the globe. And so a lot of times I'm sure the decision was made, well, let's just table that for now and we'll kind of do that, you know, at a later date, so to speak. And so as a result, a lot of times things weren't getting done that weren't necessarily mission critical. We were very early stage, but the appetite is, is definitely there. And obviously what you highlighted there, Sean, isn't unique. You and I have had that experience working with customers over the years where that's very often the starting point where things have been working in a very, in legacy companies in a very decentralized way in, in large global organizations. And I think legal operations is in that unique position that you can start to bring things together. How did you go about getting buy-in firstly from the legal team? Again, fortunately, our GC has made it known to everyone that like what this role is for, why we've brought on this role, and why we've empowered me to, to do all of these things that we need as legal. The amount of work that legal teams are going to be requested to do is very likely not going to go down, but only continue to increase. So we've got to find a way for everyone to continue to work and not be completely swamped and overloaded all of the time and get things done quicker and cut the amount of time we're spending on our manual tasks and these sorts of things. So definitely starts there. He has made the case well-known, which has been awesome. But I think also, you know, I identified a few very 
let's say very easy, quick wins that I could contribute to the team right away that I kind of did initially to hopefully start to get them to, to think about, okay, these are some, some ways that this role can actually help me. It's not all theory and it's not all these things very far down the line. It's like actually just kind of optimizing some very basic processes and, um, you know, creating email distribution list and, you know, some of these very basic housekeeping things that, you know, no one had just done previously. And so those were, I'd say it starts at the top, but then also finding some quick wins and really impacting the way that, that they're, they're doing their jobs, however you can, as fast as you can. And Sean, outside of those kind of quick wins, what was the kind of core area of focus for you in that first year? Was there a specific project or initiative that you were working towards? Yeah. So initially I really dove in getting a very good understanding on exactly how the team is working today, what our existing tech stack looks like and, and all of the processes in place. And then from there, I kind of immediately pivoted and, and started working on our legal tech roadmap. I personally think that's super important to have a roadmap that particularly if you look at Heineken, I've shared this with our global legal community so they can very easily see what I'm working on. So if you're a lawyer, you know, in Jamaica or a lawyer in Malaysia, they know kind of what I'm working on. Like, obviously I can't speak to every single lawyer. We have, you know, around 300 within the company at all of our dozens and dozens of opcos. It, it's not feasible, of course, for one person to continually meet with everyone. So I have to be able to, you know, share my kind of vision with everyone. So they're very clear on what I'm working on and then get feedback from them and ensure that their thoughts and concerns are taken in. And we're, of course, taking care of those as we you know, work on each of these projects. But the, the roadmap was very quickly the top thing that I started to work on. I think it's been really, really helpful to, to get that done, to give everyone a very clear understanding on our strategic priorities. That's such a great idea, Sean, and particularly when you're kind of communicating one to many, and, and, and that's obviously an extremely large and globally distributed legal team that you're working with, finding ways to kind of communicate, keep people updated on the changes that they can expect and how it's going to, going to impact them. And um, I'm interested to understand, you've obviously now been on both sides of the table, you've been in senior customer success roles within technology companies, and now you're to some extent, obviously the customer and the, and the, the champion and the, the owner of technology initiatives in legal operations. How has that kind of influenced your expectations of how you want to work with technology partners now that you are on, on the other side of the table? Yeah, it's been an interesting one. I hadn't really, I guess, spent a lot of time thinking about that until very recently. But yeah, I do think I'm maybe a bit more demanding because I know what the the role is and I know what their their job is and what you know I expect of them. So I definitely think I, I might be a bit more demanding than let's say uh, your average customer. Also, I would say I I'm not afraid to let's say ask for things and I'm not afraid to kind of nudge them and that sort of thing. But at the same time, looking back on it. As a CSM, I would really appreciate that from a customer who's very engaged and, and wants things you know, done quickly versus someone who you're having to constantly pull along, right? So yeah, I think I, I'd say that that's a, a pretty good summary. It's always great when you have a customer who's engaged and is giving you feedback and, and that helps the technology provider and the company get better as well when they're, when they're getting that sort of feedback. We, we certainly always value it. 
Final question, Sean, unrelated to the world of legal operations. We know you love sports. We know you love music. We know you love travel. But, but what is it you love most about living in, in Amsterdam? It's a very walkable city and bikeable. I, I, I have a bike, one of those that you see you know, among the, the many, many on their bikes every day, even in the, the rain and the cold weather. So I, I really enjoy that. I, I personally don't like having to use a car. I've never been a big fan of driving. So yeah, I love the fact that we don't have a car and don't really need one. Public transportation is great. You know, there's tons of great cafes and restaurants and bars and, and places to grab a bite or grab a drink, kind of an endless amount. We could be uh, trying a new one you know, every week and, and never get through the list. So that's definitely up there. And the amount of parks. Now that we have a sun, like there's a lot of great green outdoor space and you know, places to go for a walk or, or, or take him for a few hours during the day on the weekend and these sorts of things. But it, it's a very livable city and a very comfortable city. There's not gigantic sky rises everywhere. The buildings are all, you know, a decent height and not overwhelming. Yeah, it's not um, insanely crowded unless you're in, you know, certain parts of the, the city on a, a weekend, let's say. But you, you kind of steer clear of those now that you live here. And, you know, it's a, it's a very nice place to live. It's, it sounds like the model for what modern city life should look like, Sean. <laughs> and I'm, I'm so happy to hear that you're, you're enjoying it. And, and as ever, so much fun catching up and, and learning about how everything's going at Heineken. So thanks so much, Sean, for, for joining us. My pleasure, Alex. Thank you very much. It was a great conversation. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity, and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.